And so, Lord, we thank you that you do abide with us. We pray that we would abide in you. Thank you that that's what you want. And now, Lord God, I pray that you would cause us to preach your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, uh, <coughs> excuse me. How many of you find it harder to uh, forgive yourself than forgive your neighbor? <laughs> I mean, right, if, if like your neighbor is in an accident and they accidentally hurt their own children, you say to them, well, you need to forgive yourself, and you really mean that, that they need to forgive themselves. But if you are in an accident and you accidentally hurt your own children, it's a lot harder to forgive yourself, right? I can't tell you the number of times someone has said to me, I have no problem forgiving others, but I really struggle forgiving myself. Why is that? I mean, it sounds kind of noble. Why is that, that I have so much trouble forgiving myself? I, too, believe me, I think I find it pretty easy to forgive other people, but I struggle to forgive myself. Why, why is that? I think we do have a really hard time forgiving ourselves. However, we have a much easier time excusing ourselves. To forgive yourself is to say, I was wrong, but I will not punish myself. I will not take vengeance upon myself. To excuse yourself is to say, although may I, I may have appeared to be wrong, I was not wrong. Several years ago, there was a survey I read. Close to a million high school seniors were surveyed. Zero percent, that is none of them, uh, rated themselves below average in ability to get along with others. Sixty percent rated themselves in the top ten percent in ability to get along with others. Twenty-five percent rated themselves in the top one percent in ability to get along with others. And it's not just teenagers. There's this other survey revealed that 94% of college faculty think of themselves as better than their average colleague. <laughs> and just think of it, I mean, when you're driving down the freeway, aren't you usually going exactly the right speed? Yeah? No matter what the speed limit is, it's the people that are slower than you in front of you or the people zinging by you that are the idiots. So we really do struggle to forgive ourselves, but we're exceptionally good at excusing ourselves. Last week, Anthony preached a really insightful sermon on, on loving yourself, and while he did, I wondered what he'd say when he got to communion. And I pictured Jesus breaking the bread and pouring the wine, and it felt like the Lord kind of asked me, hey, Peter, was Jesus loving himself when he did that? My answer was, well, yeah, of course. He is he is love. And then it felt like the Lord asked, and Peter was Jesus sacrificing himself when he did that. And again, the answer, well, yes, obviously, yes. And so he seemed to whisper, loving yourself and sacrificing yourself are not opposite things. Indeed, they're the same thing. And maybe you can't sacrifice yourself unless you love the self that you sacrifice. It is to be an offering. And then I think he kind of asked me this, and did Jesus hate himself when he did that? 
And I thought, well, no, of course not. He's love incarnate. He only does what he sees his father doing, and you love him. And then I remember John 12, 23. Only a few days earlier, Jesus did say, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world, which is an interesting thing to say, right? As if maybe you had a life in another world. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So it sounds like we must love ourselves by hating our lives in this world. But he didn't really say lives. He uses the Greek word psyche, also translated soul in English. It's the way that you see yourself and the way that you see your world. That is, you know, what we call your, your life or our life. So how do you love yourself by hating your life in this world? Kind of a riddle. It makes me think of these two guys and the difference between them. In Matthew chapter 26 and 27, Matthew kind of arranges the telling of the gospel in such a way that he intentionally contrasts these two guys, and I think he asks us this question, what's the difference? Matthew 26, Jesus is being tried by Caiaphas, the high priest. So this is immediately after he was betrayed by Judas, and just after Peter tried to save the Savior, tried to shave Jesus by cutting the ear off of the high priest, remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Both Judas and Peter must now be watching or listening as Jesus is tried. This is verse 64. Jesus says to the high priest, I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he's blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? You have now heard his blasphemy. What's your verdict? They, the Sanhedrin, the council, they answered, he deserves death. Then they spat in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Messiah. Who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl came to him and said, you also were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it. He denied it before all of them, saying, I didn't know what you're talking about. And now it's very important to remember that only a few hours earlier, in the very same chapter of Matthew, and then that the last supper, at the Last Supper, Jesus had said that they would all fall away because of him that night. And you remember that Peter pronounced before everyone, though they all fall away, I will not fall away. Jesus had already told Peter, you know, you are the rock. And on this rock I'll build my church. And yet it was only moments after that that Jesus had looked at Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Peter wanted to be a rock. He was trying as hard as he could to be the rock. Peter did not want to cave under pressure, and yet Jesus said that he would cave under pressure, that before the cock would crow, Peter would deny him three times. What was Peter to do with that? I mean, what did Jesus want from Peter? So to the servant girl, Peter said, I don't know what you're talking about. When he went out to the porch, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you are also one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to curse, and he swore an oath, I do not know the man. In other words, he said something like this, I'll be goddamned if I know that man. At that moment, 
the cock crowed. Then Peter remembered what Jesus had said, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Luke, you know, who had spent some time with Peter years later, uh, in his gospel, he records something rather poignant at this point. Luke writes, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And then Peter went out and wept bitterly. I had a fairly good relationship with the Lord, wrote the priest Anthony DeMello. I would ask him for things, converse with him, praise him, thank him. But always I had this uncomfortable feeling that he wanted me to look at him, and I would not. I would talk, but look away. Look away when I sensed he was looking at me. I was afraid I should find an accusation there of some unrepentant sin. I thought I should find a demand there. There, there would be something he wanted from me. One day I finally summoned up courage and looked. There was no accusation. There was no demand. The eyes just said, I love you. And I walked out, and like Peter, I wept. Can you imagine that moment for Peter? He had left everything to follow Jesus. And as the cock crowed, all those good deeds, all those good intentions, well, they felt like they were now forfeit. And then when Jesus looked at him with those very same eyes of infinite love with which he had always looked at him, his world, it just came unraveled. Peter came unraveled in a river of tears. Verse 75, and Peter went out and wept bitterly. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus in order to bring about his death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he repented and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. He said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. The NIV translates that phrase as, it's your responsibility. It is the thing called Judas. Taking this wrong thing and making it right, it's your responsibility. See to it yourself. Take care of it yourself. See to it yourself. Verse 5, throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. There's a picture of um, my Aunt Joycey. She struggled with addiction and depression. And she took care of it herself. She took a whole bottle of sleeping pills. My dad was a saint. He really was. But for the rest of his life, I think he was just terrified that someone else he loved would take care of it themselves. That's Billy Baldridge in the lower right-hand corner. It's hard to see him in that picture, but it's the only picture that I could find. 
He was my favorite kid in my first youth group, Bel Air Presbyterian Church in Los Angeles, California. Just an absolutely amazing, wonderful kid. Difficult dad, maybe a little mental illness, and he saw to it himself. He sat in an outdoor quad at UCLA, pulled a gun out of a brown paper bag, and shot himself in the heart. This is Tim Brewer. This is who I wanted to be. He was the high school youth director at Bel Air Press before me. He won the preaching award at Fuller. I still remember stuff he'd said, like in talks, messages at camp. He pastored a large church in St. Louis, was the husband of a loving wife, father of a few small children, but he felt like he just didn't measure up. And so he wrote a letter to his congregation saying, it's my own wretched weakness of which I'm most ashamed. And he took care of it himself. Ran a hose from the exhaust to the inside of the car, turned the car on. He attempted to fix the problem that was Tim Brewer. This is Bruce McBog. Bruce killed a cop in a failed robbery attempt as a teenager. Then met Jesus. When he got out of prison, eventually he started Christ Body Ministries. He was my friend. He attended our church back in the day. I spent a night on the street with him years ago, and I was utterly amazed at how Bruce would pastor these people that no one would talk to, and these people considered him their pastor. But Bruce also wanted to be a successful businessman and entrepreneur, and he wasn't. And so he saw to it himself. He hung himself from a banister in his home, the very same banister from which his son had accidentally hung himself as a little boy. He, he hung himself, and Bruce, Bruce, Bruce had saved him all those years before, but Bruce didn't save himself. A few years after Bruce's funeral, I did Jim's funeral. Jim Turner was an extremely successful pastor in a very legalistic Christian denomination, but he, he kind of fell apart one day, and his world fell apart. He ended up at the sanctuary. He even preached for us one Sunday 11 years ago. He preached a sermon in which he pondered this question. Could it be that grace is absent? It was a great sermon. One day he asked me about suicide. I hated the question. And so I remember I said something like, Jim, it won't work. And yet one night, several months later, he got drunk, broke a picture frame, picture framed in glass, and then he used the glass shards to see to it himself. I am so very tired of people seeing to it themselves. So I'm begging you, please, for my sake, <laughs> at least, do not see to it yourself. And yet I have to confess there are times when I've been tempted to see to it myself. I've been tempted to turn a wrong into a right at the revelation that I'm wrong. I've been tempted to take vengeance, ectikasis in Greek. It means to bring out righteousness. Sounds good. But vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That belongs to me. I've been tempted to pay for that which I cannot pay. Myself. 
I've been tempted to justify myself, and, and so have you. In the end, I think it may be the only temptation that there is. The worship of the idol that is your ego. The insane notion that you are responsible for the creation of yourself. Verse 4, Judas said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself, Judas. Judas, Aunt Joycey, Billy Baldridge, Tim Brewer, Bruce McBog, Jim Turner. There are like a whole host of factors that contributed to each one of their suicides. And yet at the end, at least for a moment, each one refused to be forgiven. For they would not forgive themselves. For being themselves. God's creation. In Christian history, you know, we've made such a deal out of Judas as the chief of sinners. We've made Judas so much worse than Peter, the Pope. But I think Matthew's wrestling with this question. How could my old friend Judas be so very much like my friend Peter and yet different? What's the difference between Judas and Peter? Between hell and heaven? You know, Jesus' betrayer in Scripture is not a tax collector, not some evil dictator, not a harlot, not a, not a pimp. His name is Judas, which basically means Judean or Jew. And Jesus is the king of the Jews. John calls him a thief, for he had been made treasurer and appears to have favored himself in the daily, you know, distributing the resources among the guys. Jesus refers to him as a devil, but devil simply means accuser or slanderer. And, well, slander is just talking crap about your neighbor. It's being critical. Jesus also calls Judas friend. Friend, even as Judas betrays him with a kiss. And Jesus had already said, there is no greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. Scripture says that Satan entered Judas. But you may remember that Jesus looked at, at Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Just after Peter said to Jesus, far be it from you, Jesus, to suffer and, and die. You see, Judas and Peter had the same problem with Jesus. Jesus didn't know how to run his own ministry. He didn't know how to serve his own cause. Earlier that week in the house of Simon the leper, a woman had broken a flask of expensive ointment, you know, over Jesus, poured it over his head. And not just Judas, not just Judas, but all the disciples grew indignant saying, this money, this money could have been used for the poor. It was then that John commented in his gospel that Jesus didn't care about the poor, he cared about the money. But it appears that they all cared about the money. Well, apparently it was that night, because Judas did care about the money. Apparently it was that night that Satan tempted Judas, maybe for the first time. The Gospels are a little fuzzy on this one about exactly when it started. But that night that Judas went to the pastors and the priests, Judas decided to go back to religion. He may have been hoping to force a revolution. Or get Jesus out of the way so another could take his place. Or maybe even force Jesus to work with the Jewish establishment. He, he may have been trying to save the Savior. Just like Peter had been trying to 
save the Savior and all the others. So, so when he saw that Jesus was condemned to die, and then they were to hand him over to the Romans, to the Romans to be hung on a tree, he knew that he, his plans had failed. Whatever the case, Matthew 27, 3, he repented. That's the New Revised Standard Version. King James Version has he repented himself. The English Standard Version has he changed his mind. The NIV has he was seized with remorse. The Greek verb is metamelomai, which is a synonym for metanaeo, which is a Greek verb most often translated as repentance. The prefix meta means with and implies change. So metanaeo is change of noe or, or mind. And metamelomai is more like change of, well, like a change of the heart. That is remorse. Whatever the case, both Peter and Judas sinned against Jesus. And both Peter and Judas received amazing grace in some form, a, a glance or, or a kiss. Both Peter and Judas repented. Judas even tried to make amends, but ironically, only Peter died to himself that night. And in the morning, only Peter dared to believe that he was forgiven as Jesus lifted his head on the tree and cried, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. See, Judas missed that bit. For he had seen to it himself the night before in the valley of Gehenna. He hung himself on a tree. He saw to it himself. And I find it deeply ironic, but just think of this. Wasn't Judas the first Adam, the first man to see that he had taken the life of God on a tree in a garden? That's what sin is. That's what you confess when you come to this table. We betray our Lord. But Judas saw to it himself before Jesus could see to it for him, with him, and even ask him. He, he saw that he had taken the life of Christ on the tree, but he had not yet seen that Christ had given his own life on the very same tree, forgiven it from the foundation of the world. That's mercy. And mercy is not breaking the law. Christ is not a lawbreaker. Christ is the fulfillment of every law. He's the good. He is the deepest and the oldest commandment. Eternal life. He's the word of God. In other words, he's the very fabric of reality. So when I think of the difference between Peter and Judas, I think of the difference between Jean Valjean and Inspector Javert in Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. I'm sorry to disturb you. You caught him. But I had my eye on this man. Oh, thank and... God. I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. What happened to your eye, Monseigneur? Didn't he tell you he was our guest last night? Oh, yes. After we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed <laughs> that you gave it to him. Yes. Of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gillo, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hurry. 
Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him. You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Why are you doing this? Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. You know, that's uh, Jean Valjean. The night before, the bishop had invited him to dinner, and he paid back the grace and the favor of the bishop by stealing his, his silverware. In the book, Jean Valjean now flees the bishop, quote, in a sort of rage. He steals some money from a child, and then haunted by the bishop's act of mercy, he tries to return the money, just like Judas tried to return the 30 pieces of silver, but it doesn't work. And alone with himself, he breaks like Peter broke. He falls to the ground and he cries out in the words of Victor Hugo, I'm a wretch. Then his heart bursts and he began to cry. It was the first time that he had wept in 19 years, writes Victor Hugo. He had hardened himself against the angelic action and the gentle words of the old man. To this celestial kindness, he had opposed pride, which is the fortress of evil within us. The bishop had hurt his soul, as too vivid a light would have hurt his eyes upon emerging from the dark. Jean Valjean wept for a long time. He wept burning tears. As he wept, daylight penetrated more and more clearly into his soul, an extraordinary light, a light at once ravishing and terrible. He examined his life, and it seemed horrible to him. His soul seemed frightful to him. In the meantime, a gentle light rested over this life and this soul. It seemed to him that he beheld Satan by the light of paradise. And Jean Valjean dies to all that he thought he was, and then he begins to rise with Christ. In, in, in theological terms, he's justified by grace, creating faith. And so his life becomes an incarnation of relentless love, that is, mercy. And yet wherever he goes, he's, in, he's pursued by Inspector Javert, who worships an idol that he would falsely call justice, Lady Justice. She is blind, has a set of scales, and ensures that we each get what we pay for. But you did not pay for yourself. One evening during the Paris uprising of 1832, Javert is captured by insurgents and then sentenced to death, as it would have it, at the hands of Jean Valjean. But Jean Valjean fakes the execution of Javert, risking his own life in order to save Javert's life, and he lets him go. Later still, Javert catches Jean Valjean, but is haunted by mercy. It's a pity the rules don't allow me to be merciful. I've tried to live my life without breaking a single rule. 
You're free. Almost looks noble, doesn't it? It's interesting that the American movie makes it look like Javert is fulfilling the law by taking Jean Valjean's place as some sort of penal substitute. But in the Bible, penal substitutes are literally against the law. Each man shall die, each Adam will die for his own sins. In the book, in the book, Javert doesn't die for Jean Valjean. He just lets Jean Valjean go, haunted, not only by Jean Valjean's mercy, but his own mercy. He's not simply concerned that mercy might be against the rules, but that in reality, mercy might be the only rule. <laughs> this is what Victor Hugo writes. Javert was undergoing a horrible suffering. He beheld before him two paths, and the poignant anguish lay in this, that the two paths were contrary to each other. One of these straight lines excluded the other. He perceived amid the shadows the terrible rising of an unknown sun. It horrified and dazzled him. He asked himself, what has that convict done in showing mercy on me? His duty? No, something else, something more. And I, in showing mercy on him in my turn, what have I done? My duty? No, something more. So there is something beyond duty. Here he took fright. His balance became disjointed. One of the scales fell into the abyss. The other rose heavenward, and Javert was no less terrified by the one which was on high than the one which was below. He became unexpectedly conscious of God, and he felt embarrassed by him. In the presence of a superior who amazes him too greatly, the inferior has no other resource than that of handing in his resignation. But how was he to set about handing in his resignation to God? Bill Maher once said, suicide is our way of saying to God, you can't fire me, I quit. And I think he's right. Well, Back to Victor Hugo. That which was passing in Javert was the derailment of a soul, the crushing of a stringent morality, a probity, which had been irresistibly launched in a straight line and was now breaking against God. You see, God is love, and God is free. And God is the creator of everything that's anything, which means there is nothing but grace. And so everything that's anything has already been justified by grace. Just as everything that's anything has already been created by love. And so everything that appears to justify itself is a nothing pretending to be a something. A something that is actually a nothing which the Bible calls evil. And that means that your sins are the manifestation of an evil that keeps you in bondage and trapped by an illusion like all the time. And that's why past sins are always a gift in disguise. 
For when you see sin for sin, you realize that you cannot pay for your sins or justify yourself. And yet you've never been able to justify yourself. And the illusion that you could justify yourself is the lie which creates the prison in which you find yourself trapped like all the time. So you see the things you think of as your sins? They just reveal what has always been true, but you have never believed. And that is that you cannot justify yourself. And in fact, you are eternally justified by absolute grace, who is our God. This is not your God. This is your God. So, forgiveness is reality. He's the creator. Forgiveness is reality, and unforgiveness is an illusion of our own creation and the prison in which we trap ourselves. It's hell. And that's why it's so important to forgive yourself, because unforgiveness is the unforgivable sin. Unforgiveness cannot exist in the presence of God, who is absolute grace. So, listen closely. You must forgive yourself. For you are the creation of God. When a last-ditch effort to appease his idol and destroy himself with himself, Javert throws himself into the rapids of the Seine. <sighs> Never thought of this before. He literally goes insane. <laughs> And in a last-ditch effort to appease his idol, Judas tries to kill himself with himself, which is actually just the same as trying to save himself with himself, which is just more self, more old self. Saving the old self with the old self, it's seen to it himself. But Judas fails. Maybe he stops his heart, but he doesn't kill himself. The problem with suicide is that it doesn't work. Uh, number one, it doesn't work because according to Scripture, already dead. This is where a lot of confusion comes in. <laughs> but according to Scripture, we're already dead. Dead in our trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of our flesh. The flesh hasn't been cut away. And number two... You can't kill yourself with yourself, your, your dead self with your dead self, for you only create more false self within, within which the true self is imprisoned. The day we died was the day we took fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and so began accusing ourselves, accusing our neighbors, accusing our God, all in an effort to justify ourselves. But instead of justifying ourselves, instead of creating ourselves, we create imitation selves. An imitation self that is an imitation Christ, for we think it can save us from ourselves, yet it is the deepest lie about ourselves, and so it is our own deepest prison. The process starts the moment you hide from God and you attempt to justify yourself, hiding yourself in fig leaves and the thing that the Bible calls the flesh, your ego, your psyche, what you normally think of as your life, your successes and your failures, your resume, and yet deep inside the person that you think you have made is hidden the person that God has made and is still making. And so deep inside of Inspector Javert, there's a little boy that's made for love. 
And deep inside of Judas is the child of God, called by God. Deep inside of Aunt Joyce, the alcoholic, is my dad's little sister. Deep inside of Billy Baldridge, Tim Brewer, Bruce McBog, and Jim Turner is the breath of God and my friend. For a moment, they couldn't see themselves, but I could see them, and I convinced that Jesus never took his eyes off of them. In Acts chapter 1, Peter and the disciples say that Judas, quote, went to his own place. You see, he was lost in himself. He was trapped in his own soul, his psyche. Judas trusted his own psyche, his own judgment, his false self, and so hated his true self and imprisoned that self in a world of pride, shame, and ego. Jesus called him the son of Apollea, which is translated perdition or destruction or the lost. Apoleia is the noun that comes from the verb apolumi, which means to lose. In John 17, the night he's betrayed by Judas, Jesus prays to his father. Not one of them is lost, apolumi, except the son of Apoleia, the lost. But didn't Jesus say that he came to seek and to save the lost? And didn't tell this amazing story about this shepherd that would leave 99 in the wilderness to go find the one that was lost and then invite everybody to this raging party and celebration because the lost had been found? In C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, the angel who's giving a bus tour of hell says, only the greatest of all can make himself small enough to enter hell. For the higher a thing is, the lower it can descend. A man can sympathize with a horse, but a horse cannot sympathize with a rat. Only one has descended into hell. And will he ever do so again? Asked someone on the bus ride. It was not once long ago that he did it, answers the angel. Time does not work that way when once we have left the earth. All moments that have been or shall be were or are present in the moment of his descending. Let me read that again. All moments that have been or shall be were or are present in the moment of his descending. There is no spirit in prison to whom he did not preach. In the movie, What Dreams May Come, a woman refuses to forgive herself for killing her own children in a car accident. And then sinking into a depression, a depression that destroys her husband, she takes her own life. When her husband dies, he goes to heaven and discovers that his bride is in hell. And so he, like, tricks this angel into allowing him to descend into hell just to be with his bride. He says to her, people end up in hell because they cannot forgive themselves. I know I can't but I can forgive you. For killing my children, she asks, and my sweet husband? His name is Christy, and so he answers, no, for being so wonderful, a guy would choose hell over heaven just to be around you. And then rather suddenly, hell transforms into heaven. I know that Jesus descended into hell, because Scripture says so. But my heart knows that Jesus descended into hell because Aunt Joyce 
is his bride. And because Billy, Tim, Bruce, and Jim are his body. And I saw him in them. And because I know he told them that he would never leave them nor forsake them. When Billy pulled the trigger, when Tim wrote the letter and started the car, when Bruce tied the rope around the banister, when Jim slashed himself to death with all those shards of glass, they were already in hell. And what they did did not deliver them from that hell. In fact, it may have only sunk them deeper into that hell. But I'm convinced that Jesus went there with them. You must forgive yourself because you are the creation of God. And you must forgive yourself because whatever you do to the least of these, you do to him. And you are the least of these the moment you take the pills. The moment you hang yourself on the tree. The moment you tie the noose. Matthew 27, 4. Judas said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since they are blood money. After conferring together, they used them to buy the potter's field as a place to bury foreigners, strangers, Gentiles. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one on whom a price has been set, on whom some of the people of Israel had set a price, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. This is the potter's field took this picture from the edge of the city wall in Jerusalem or the temple wall. It's in the valley of Gehenna where it runs into the Kidron Valley down which the blood of sacrifice would flow from the temple mount and Mount Calvary. The prophets Zechariah and Jeremiah, they say fascinating things about the potter's field and the amazing thing that the potter could do with clay and water and fire. In Acts chapter 1, Luke and Peter tell us that Judas acquired this field. Matthew just told us that the priest purchased this field, acquired this field with the blood money from Judas, which means that Jesus actually purchased the field through Judas and the priests with his own life given on the tree on Mount Calvary the field the morning after Judas took his own life on a tree in the valley of Gehenna in the potter's field. Gehenna is sometimes translated hell in English Bibles. The priest purchased the field for burying foreigners, says Matthew. Foreigners who could not be buried within the walls of Jerusalem. It was Jeremiah that prophesied that one day the valley would be holy and it would be entirely inside of the new Jerusalem. Jesus purchased it and his friend Judas with his blood. We know Peter was also in hell as he denied Jesus those three times. But Peter died with Jesus in a pool of tears. And he rose with Jesus as Jesus said three times, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. In other words, Peter, you are who I always said you were. But Peter, you are not your own creation. 
Peter died with Jesus and rose with Jesus. But Judas took his own life before that happened. And yet that means, doesn't mean that it, that it didn't happen or it can't happen for Judas. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that after he died, Jesus appeared to the twelve. And he's clearly referring to a time before the disciples picked another guy to replace Judas, which, according to the book of Acts, probably wasn't God's pick. I think he appeared to Judas, I think Jesus appeared to Judas at his tree in the valley of Gehenna and said something like this, my friend, let me turn your tree into my tree. My tree from the garden, just up the hill. You know that it's at the cross that we learn to love ourselves. For we begin to hate our psyches in this world. It's at the cross that we lose our lives and find them. It's at the cross that we die to death, which is the second death, the death of death and eternal life. It's at the cross that we stop justifying ourselves, for we finally see that we have always been justified. It's at the cross that we finally can forgive ourselves because we can no longer excuse ourselves. We can only praise God for the gift that is ourselves. It's at the cross that we are made in the image of God according to the judgment of God, which is the word of God and the commandment of God. I know that his commandment is eternal life, said Jesus. And said Jesus, I am the life. You must forgive yourself because you are God's creation. And you must forgive yourself because suicide will not work. And you must forgive yourself because it's the only way to die. You must forgive yourself because it's the judgment of God. If you say, I just can't forgive myself, and people, I hear people say that all the time, I just can't forgive myself. If you say that, I have to ask you in the name of Jesus, who the hell do you think you are? He died for the sins of the world. It is finished. That's good enough for God. So who the hell do you think you are? The accuser? See, Peter listened to the accuser until the cock crowed and he looked at Jesus and Jesus looked at him and his eyes told him who he was. Judas was listening to the accuser, but I don't believe that he's listening now because Jesus came to destroy the work of who? The accuser, the devil. The way Luke tells the story, a guy named Paul actually replaces Judas in, in the book of Acts, if you pay close attention. And, and Paul wrote that he was the foremost of sinners, the of sinners, and yet he wrote, like wrote most of the New Testament. He's the apostle of grace. And the way John tells the story, Judas is constantly throwing his crown at the feet of Jesus as Jesus constantly keeps placing it back on the head of Judas. And the way Jesus tells the story, Judas and Peter are sitting on two of twelve thrones because in Matthew 19, speaking to them, Jesus said that they would be. Those that have followed him would be, and they had followed him. He was looking at them. But Judas killed himself because he wouldn't forgive himself for a time. And Judas killed himself, and now this is really wild, because it was all according to plan. And in fulfillment of Scripture. 
according to Jesus and according to Peter in the book of Acts chapter 1. And so you see Judas or Peter, Peter, Peter didn't blame Judas as if he could have done something differently, but he praised God who uses all things to reveal his grace to all people. Everything is grace, including your faith, which is the good judgment of God in you. Jim Turner's funeral was really hard for me. It was 10 years ago uh, last Monday. In the service, I said a lot of the things I, I just shared with you, and then I shared this question that really troubled me. I said I asked God this question, and I'm still asking it. How do I know that in 10 years I won't find myself alone in a basement apartment somewhere struggling with depression, drinking too much, and doing something like this, which just causes so much pain. How do I know? And then I answered, I don't. I don't know, and I can't know, and that's okay. Because I'm not saved by what I know. I'm saved by the one who knows me. And so I don't have to fear my own bad judgment. Because the good judgment of God knows me and loves me. What I'm saying is you don't have to fear yourself. I think a lot of people kill themselves because they're terrified of themselves. You don't have to fear yourself. You don't really even have to fight yourself. And the very best way to hate your false self and so love and liberate your true self is to simply expose yourself to the judgment of God. And so he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. And in the same manner after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this is the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. You must forgive yourself because God has declared that you're forgiven. Forgiving yourself is the only way to die. And it's the only way to live. There's this old legend that for the rest of his life, whenever Peter heard like a, a rooster crowing, he would drop to the ground and start weeping, begging God for forgiveness. It's a stupid legend. Don't believe it. There's another legend that Peter had like deep furrows in his cheek uh, from the tears which would constantly flow from his eyes. That's a stupid legend too. Don't believe it. But there is one last story that that once when Peter was preaching, he just, he wanted to quit. I mean, people weren't listening, and he was tired, and it just wasn't going well. And then in the distance, he heard a rooster crow. And he began to preach with holy fire. That's a good one to believe. <laughs> so in Jesus' name, believe the gospel. The dark cups are wine, blue cups are juice, and they're both the grace of God.
And I believe he commands you to drink it. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Lord God, you just heard us. We said that we surrender to your design. And so, Lord, uh, you love us thoroughly, completely, absolutely. Jesus said that the way you feel about him is the way you feel about us. And so, Father, we confess to you that we have not loved ourselves. We have not forgiven ourselves. We have not seen ourselves as you see us. And so we surrender to your design. We offer ourselves, Lord God. And we thank you that you love us perfectly, completely, absolutely, and you will not abandon us. But you will transform us into the image of your Son, who it is that we truly are. And for that, we give you worship and praise. We offer ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. And so I ask you that question, why is it that it's so hard, you know, to... Uh, for, forgive yourself, you forgive yourself is so much harder than forgiving other people. Why is that? It's because you're proud. And that's not noble. That's called original sin. <laughs> that's why I have such a hard time forgiving myself because I'm proud of myself. I'm not proud of you, I'm proud of me. And so are you. So forgive yourself. You must forgive yourself because you can't kill yourself with yourself. It's only more self. You can only die with Jesus. So when I find myself hating myself, pay close attention. When I find myself hating myself, which happens fairly often, in order to love myself, I picture myself being crucified with Jesus. And there I die with Jesus. And I rise with Jesus. I do not see to it myself. I see to it with Jesus. That's forgiveness. So in Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Amen.